Fiona and Marlene from the Indie Life podcast team. We're delighted to introduce the latest episode of our Mibby's Eye show, the show for people who are maybe still making up their mind. This month we have a perspective of how Scotland is viewed from Ireland and what they think our future is likely to be. Dr Paul Gillespie is an Irish academic and former journalist who very kindly attended two Q&A sessions, one with Grassroots Open and one with Pensioners for Indy. So we've put together a mixture of the questions from both events. It's a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy it. Well, just to say I'm delighted to be able to speak to you from Dublin uh, on this huge subject of Ireland and Scotland and Brexit uh, and the consequences uh, of it for us all. I'm based in University College Dublin uh, in the Institute for British-Irish Studies, which is an institute uh, that's been studying uh, the British-Irish relationship really since the uh, Good Friday Agreement uh, in 1998. Uh, and uh, I've done a huge amount of work on this, including uh, plenty of work on Scotland looking at uh, the UK and Europe, uh, there's a deep issue of sovereignty uh, involved. Uh, and you have an absolute vision of sovereignty, which is now coming to the foreground, particularly with the hard Brexiteers. Um, and it means that there's a great difficulty in conceiving the sharing of sovereignty uh, amongst this tradition uh, and these politicians in Britain. And of course, that affects uh, internal relations within the United Kingdom, as well as our external relationship, notably, of course, their relations with Scotland and Northern Ireland. Now, first of all, I want to look at what I have headlined Scotland and Ireland now. And it's the particularly the context of the United Kingdom. Uh, the whole future of the United Kingdom is moving to the top of your political agenda in Scotland, but also throughout uh, England and in other parts of the UK in a way that was uh, really unforeseen several years ago and is taking lots of people by surprise, including those in the main major political parties. So this dual sovereignty crisis, as I describe it, externally vis-a-vis -vis the EU and internally vis-a-vis -vis the constituent elements of the UK is now coming to a head. It's been long in the making. It's been stoked, though, by the Brexit, by the departure from the, from the European Union uh, and, of course, the way that was carried and not carried, carried uh, through uh, England and Wales, but certainly not carried in Scotland and not carried either in Northern Ireland. And that differentiation stokes up the consequences of this sovereignty problem. And what we did, we wanted to identify the drivers of change, potential political and major constitutional change uh, in the context of Brexit. So the first element we took was the nature of the Brexit uh, um, departure. And of course, it wasn't specified. And the whole debate has been whether it's going to be uh, hard or soft. That is, more distant from the EU uh, uh, that the UK was departing from, or closer to it. And in the event we have a hard version, next to no deal, perhaps as hard as you could get, pulling out of the single market and the customs union with all the consequences we're now seeing uh, flowing from that. The other element that we looked at in drawing up these scenarios uh, was what we call the power dynamics in the United Kingdom itself, the level of centralization of, uh, of decision-making and power as between Westminster, London, and again, the constituent units. Uh, and of course, one of the effects, and the harder the Brexit, uh, the more these effects have uh, manifested themselves, has been a re-centralization of power uh, back to London as the uh, competences that the governing competences that were in Brussels, such as trade and agriculture, for example, are re-centralised back to London rather than being brought back to the devolved authorities where some of them uh, were meant to be. And you know better than I do the full consequences of that over the last three years. If you combine the hard Brexit with the centralised power, we drew a scenario up about the um, breakup of the UK, which is the most radical outcome. Um, and that would include Scottish independence, potential and, and actual Irish unification, English sovereignty, Welsh independence too. And then you can you draw this 
quite hard-edged outcome. And you know, ostensibly, we've got this centralization of power and uh, the distant or hard Brexit. So this uh, potential scenario is very much on the cards. It's plausible. It may not be desirable. Some people desire it, some don't, but it's certainly plausible analytically. Uh, an alternative to that uh, would be where you have widely dispersed power and it's still a hard Brexit is what we call a differentiated outcome. And that's manifested most particularly in the outcome for Northern Ireland, which has stayed in this hybrid state, recognising its unique political aspects, uh, but where it's, it remains in the, UK, in the EU customs union, but out of the single market with all the consequences specified in the protocol. And the fourth uh, scenario, roughly sketchy, is the, a, a federalising UK. That would resolve in principle or in theory, according to its proponents, most of the problems around the UK of this dual sovereignty problem. But it requires uh, a much closer relationship with the uh, EU than is, is allowed for by the hard Brexiteers. Uh, and therefore, the whole question of agency to achieve it is very hard to specify. Uh, the Labour Party has been working on this, but uh, it's unconvincing, it seems to me, uh, so far, and uh, you have to, you know, assess that. So those, those are sketching uh, from Dublin kind of analytical uh, picturing of the way the UK might go. This has huge consequences uh, for Ireland. Thinking about the possible uh, futures involved, uh, we see many of the uh, political manifestations now. The reassertion uh, by the Johnson government of this centralised assertive unionism, his remark in passing about the disaster that, is, that was devolution reveals this. And again, it's, I'm sure, well covered and discussed in the Scottish terms. What strikes me is there's is there fascinating historical parallels uh, going on here. I'm reminded of the Home Rule movement of the 1880s and 1890s and that whole movement which prefigured uh, over 40 years Irish in the struggle for Irish independence which ended up with violence where you had after the Home Rule Bill in 1893 fell after Gladstone's government, you had this so-called uh, attempt to kill home rule with kindness, uh, a so-called constructive unionism, where there was a lot of spending and an attempt at land reform and actual land reform in Ireland, but that was only broken by the parliamentary arithmetic when it changed in 1911. Now it's worth re recalling this because there are in this, in this uh, imperial structure of the UK, many of those kinds of historical parallels. As we know, we didn't get home rule in Ireland. It was interrupted by the, by the, by the uh, First World War. And then there was a transition in that war to violence, to the 1916 rebellion, to the 1918 election, and then to the Irish War of Independence and the whole debate about revolution and violence and its role in achieving independence, uh, which we're now having to re remember 100 years on and are doing and attempting to come to terms with that. So those are parallels arising from the structure and one has to uh, uh, understand um, what's going on in unionism, in, in unions and amongst unionists to come to grips with this. And of course, this is something, as we look at the consequences for Ireland of the way these forces work out, we have to understand uh, all of those elements much more clearly if we're going to have uh, a debate as it's now opening up in Ireland about Irish unification as one of the consequences of what's happening. Uh, we have to understand what unionisms are concerned with uh, throughout the UK, but particularly in the north of Ireland. And again, we've been doing work on this in our institute. We've published a special issue of a, of a journal on comparative unionism. And this is kind of preliminary to the really important discussions that we're going to be facing over the next five or 10 years, it seems to us, as these issues work themselves out. Now, they're working themselves out, secondly, in a major U context of the European Union, the European Union itself uh, after the UK's departure. Uh, and that departure, it's worth underlining, and I certainly argue this, uh, the fundamental weakness of the UK vis-a-vis -vis the EU came through uh, in these negotiations, notwithstanding uh, the assertion, particularly by the Brexiteers, but on both sides of the uh, principle of sovereign equality. 
Um, this is uh, a state of 65 uh, or so, 66 million, uh, up against a, a, a continental entity of four or 500 million, uh, somewhat reduced, of course, by Britain's departure. But the asymmetry of power uh, there is very visible in the negotiation. And the tattered, fragmented nature of that agreement that was reached the end of December is now beginning to work itself out, it seems to me. And, and this is, is showing itself up. And of course, one of the temptations for the politicians involved is to try and cover or mask that by blaming the other. And that's one of the issues that's going on. Uh, so if a disruptive approach is being sought, uh, it's being sought, I would argue, very much in the context of this, again, dual sovereignty question. And if we're getting roused, which we are, and they're going quite deep-seated now about uh, the trustworthiness of this British government vis-a-vis -vis the Northern Ireland Protocol, where they've, for the third time, raised the issue of breaching uh, article, articles in the agreement, um, uh, you're up against an issue that is driven not only by London's relationship with Brussels, but I would say, too, uh, in, in a way to warn the Scots, you are going to vote in May, about the issue of borders and the disruptive element of borders. Uh, I think there's as much of an element uh, of internal politics going on here as there is of external politics. Now, I want to look at the way in which the um, UK and Ireland futures intersect. Um, in, in Ireland, the whole Brexit uh, crisis, uh, because it's brought Northern Ireland out of the EU against its majority vote, it's opening up uh, a debate on unification, uh, which goes alongside Scotland's own debate on, 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 on independence and its future. And the two are sort of, as it were, rolling together and they structurally uh, related and intersected. If you look at this in northern terms, it's striking what's happened in the last three years, uh, that the issue of unification has come uh, from being rather quiet, uh, taken for granted, but not in, in, as much in the foreground as it now is. Uh, and that's happened notwithstanding the uh, re-establishment of power sharing. The attitudes of many people from a Catholic nationalist background uh, towards unity, which changed during the exercise of devolutionary power, uh, it, because many people from a Catholic nationalist background are willing to accept a devol devolved settlement in the north of Ireland and not a unification uh, um, uh, scenario, uh, so long as it works. But if it doesn't work, if it becomes dysfunctional also by taking the state out of the EU, the issue of unity as an alternative has arisen once again. And it's driven by Brexit, by partly by demography. The, the census this year will show probably a Catholic majority uh, within the <clears throat> are within Northern Ireland. It's driven politically by competition looking to the assembly elections next year, where it's conceivable that those from a nationalist, Catholic and other background will actually have a majority over against unionism. Uh, there was a, a small citizens' assembly was uh, held by our colleagues in Queen's University in 2019. They had uh, 50 people gathered and they particularly asked them about attitudes towards the status quo, that is the continuation of Northern Ireland in the UK, and um, the potential for Irish unification. And they asked them further about the possible shapes of United Ireland, because it could be either devolved, which would continue the power sharing arrangements as we now have them in the North, uh, or it could be a unitary in which you no longer would have that power sharing arrangement and devolved governance within Northern Ireland, but have a unitary state centred on Dublin. Uh, and in fact, we discovered that people, first of all, weren't aware that there would be alternative shapes for a united Ireland of that kind. And secondly, that as they became aware during that discussion, uh, during that day of the Citizens' Assembly, particularly those from a Protestant Unionist background, were became much more interested in a unitary state than in a devolved one, partly because they saw the benefits of escaping uh, from the dysfunctionality of, as they see it, of the devolved power-sharing arrangements so far. 
are. Not only is the issue of unification being raised uh, in Northern Ireland, but of course it's being raised in the Republic as well. But again, the issue of a potential unification, while it's been inscribed uh, strongly in Irish nationalism, it's rather abstract, uh, not discussed in great any concrete detail. Uh, it's there as a kind of piece of mythology or a piece of tokenism, uh, very often politically. But it's suddenly been made concrete by the, uh, Bre- the consequences of Brexit and the realisation that the increasingly unstable United Kingdom may force the issue onto an Irish agenda before people have had time to think it right through or prepare for it adequately. And there Therefore, people are kind of grappling and scrambling uh, to adopt positions on this, realising that the pace of events may be much more rapid than they uh, previously understood. So the issue is now becoming uh, more strongly defined. It's partly polarised politically because, of course, Sinn Féin, as the strongest nationalist party in Northern Ireland, it's been uh, very much part of their political identity uh, um, uh, over the years. And it's driven in good large part by the dissatisfaction of their constituency in Northern Ireland with the state of play there. And they are an All-Ireland party and they did exceedingly well in the um, elections one year ago where they now are uh, um, potentially the largest party if it comes to another election. And they drive an agenda which demands preparation for Irish unification through the parliament, through citizens' assemblies, uh, through a ministry even. Uh, And in response to that, uh, the other parties, particularly Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the two parties arising from the Irish Civil War, who are now unprecedentedly in coalition with the smaller Green Party, uh, but they have adopted what they called a shared island approach, uh, which is alternative to uh, immediate demands or prospective demands for unity, emphasise a gradualist approach to North-South relations, repairing the Belfast Agreement, Good Friday Agreement institutions, developing good economic, social, political and cultural relations on the island prior to and if you like, as a condition for any further discussion about unity. Now, this is an evolutionary agenda could be seen towards a longer term unity perspective, or it could be seen as a as one in which Ireland in the Republic would, if it works out this way, be happy with a reformed and changed United Kingdom, so long as the borders remained open and relations, human and political and other relations, uh, remain open on the island of Ireland. Um, In particular, with the dynamics in Scotland, the consequent effects on Northern Ireland and on the Republic uh, for this uh, are really uh, worthy of analysis. For Scotland and Northern Ireland and the Republic, these issues of referendums, borders and EU membership are increasingly shared interests and concerns. The whole question of uh, Northern Ireland unionists and Protestantism and Orangeism uh, linked up to Scotland historically and what happens if, uh, if Scotland were to leave the UK, what happens to their political identity in that setting. So it's worth thinking about all sorts of futures. Geography won't change even if history does. Uh, we're going to need to think about futures and if you want to use the constitutional language, uh, that future could be in several different ways that are worth exploring, confederal. And the confederalism denotes states that agree to work together, but don't pool their sovereignty in the fully fledged way that would happen in federations, but retain their independence to do what they want to do alone uh, and uh, agree on what they want to do together. I've been thinking about potential uh, unionism beyond the union. And it might take a confederal form and it would reassure unionists both in Scotland and Ireland that the links that were established partly institutionally through the Belfast Agreement, such as the uh, British-Irish Council, British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, uh, but these are potential uh, models of futures. One can think of confederal links between the Republic of Ireland and Scotland in order to facilitate 
uh, rapid EU membership after potential Scottish independence. That's being talked about in the literature. Uh, you one can think of other Irish-Scottish confederal links in that new setting of joint membership of the EU. Um, one can think of in similar ways uh, and uh, some colleagues that I've been working with uh, are developing this idea of a, a Northern Ireland Scottish uh, set of links which might include Ireland uh, confederally. I know that in Wales, the Clyde Cymru is thinking about confederal relations uh, with England after in potential independence. They've, uh, Adam Price has been talking very interestingly about that. And you have to think then, of course, about Scottish-English relations, not only in the difficult issue of uh, the border, where you to get Scottish independence soon and have to live beside a hard Brexit, uh, uh, where how do you handle that border? It's going to be a huge issue in any discussion, um, uh, just as we do vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Northern Ireland Protocol. The main things that seem to have come up in, in the chat, the big one is the borders, hiked up perhaps more by Westminster and the, the Unionist side. Um, I think a lot of people on on the independence side don't really see it as a big issue. But... I, I, I fully understand that the way it's being hyped. Uh, um... The, the rational basis of that argument, I presume, is the uh, the way the trade flows go. I don't know how convincing those arguments are about where Scotland's Scotland's pattern of trade with England compared to uh, Europe or, or or external trade. If you assume the kind of the hardness of the border going through any referendum campaign, uh, that's going to be a difficult one. But there's no, um, I don't, you, you don't have to presume that that border remains hard. The trouble is, how do you manage that uh, if you have to maintain the integrity of this European single market, which is the issue facing the Irish government and the EU and, and the Northern Ireland authorities in Northern Ireland? Because the one thing that's very clear is, is the determination coming through the EU uh, side in all these negotiations is about protecting that integrity. And if as Boris Johnson says, the whole point of Brexit was to, to diverge. And if part of the um, thinking there is to weaken environmental labour and other standards in order to compete more effectively uh, on the world market and back into Europe, uh, the determination on the European side is to, not to see that happen. So we're facing this uh, if, if it gets highly disruptive with the Northern Ireland Protocol, if the thing breaks down, we're into a no-deal setting, and that would reinstall a border on the Irish border on land. So it, it's very hard to read British government's attention here, except one obvious reading is a disruptive intent. But it's, it's hard to read how long that would play out for, uh, given their comparative weakness, as I see it, uh, lots of accidents may happen in such, you know, a transition. Uh, and so we may end up with all sorts of undesired consequences. So I'm saying this is really messy, not uh, un insoluble. I was very interested in the comment that you mentioned about the situation with Northern Ireland and the EEC and the resultant problems being used to demonstrate likely difficulties for an independent Scotland in the EEC and trading with England. Well, I think there's the great ambiguity from Johnson as to how and why he signed the protocol, giving putting the border in the IRC. I think uh, one very clear interpretation would be that he thought he could uh, wriggle out of the kind of legal commitments that that would involve, even though he, the stuff on mince meats and sausages were actually written into the agreement. They're there in black and white. They've been playing this game of trying to wriggle out or delay the application while they establish uh, their trade deals, including, for example, the Australian one they've just done. Uh, one of the things that Biden said to Johnson was that, look, you should go and do the psychosanitary deal on food, which would solve 80% or 90% of the problem uh, in Northern Ireland, but it involves a dynamic alignment with EU regulation, at least for a, a four or five year period. In my judgment, that's the likely compromise that will come out of this. The implication of this, though, the timing of this, I was very intrigued, overlapped 
with the, with the Scottish Parliament elections and were being used, I think, with a view to warning Scots uh, about the difficulties that would that will arise. The harder the Brexit, the further they diverge from EU regulation, the more difficult it is uh, it's going to be to reconcile the single market uh, and the customs arrangement in the EU with continued trading with, with, with England. You know, um, that, that's an objective fact and a legal fact. These are, these are difficult issues uh, and not, not fully capable of being resolved politically without political change in England. But would it help if Scotland had a period of being an EFTA, like being an associate member of the EU, so it had a foot in both camps, so to speak, at least in a transition period? Theoretically plausible uh, and politically, you know, analytically plausible. How politically doable uh, is, is, it, is it in this fraught uh, um, uh, encounter between uh, the Brussels and London uh, with this hard Brexiteer government in London is, is another question. It may be hard to get a hearing and a toleration mm -hmm. during, the, during that time. Uh, this is where Scotland will need uh, allies, uh, including mm -hmm. in London, um, and advocates. It needs <laughs> diplomacy now in order to develop that you know, case. In April 2017, uh, Enda Kenny, the Irish Taoiseach, got the agreement of the um, uh, European Council uh, that were Northern Ireland to unite with Ireland, it would automatically become a member of the uh, EU, just as East Germany did in, in, in 1990. And that uh, German um, memory and precedent was really important because uh, the Irish government uh, was one of the few and in a minority initially uh, um, to support German unification. Uh, in, in at a December council meeting in 1989, and it the next six months from January to uh, July 1990, Ireland had the EU presidency, and oversaw a couple of special summits in which German unification was agreed unconditionally, uh, earning the great um, gratitude of the German government. How stable is, is, is this, this Brexit? I think everything I've said would lead me <laughs> to believe uh, that it's unstable, destabilising yeah. and likely <laughs> to be unstable and yeah. reflects uh, much deeper processes uh, of, uh, uh, in, uh, going on in the British state and in the empire that, you know, the global power that it had before. So yeah. it's unfolding of very long-term processes. So many of these issues were under-discussed or not discussed at all or taken completely for granted uh, in all sorts of stereotypes uh, and uh, political mythologies. To say that it's destabilising, uh, I don't think it, that means necessarily that it's incapable of reform or that it has to go in a revolutionary direction. Whether it became kind of social revolutionary change is another different kind of dimension, certainly constitutionally a radical change. But the trouble is you've got a waning sense of Britishness, as we know, uh, that is the glue that held things together. Austerity has driven stakes into the, the welfare state glue, the post-war uh, social contract that uh, held things together, including with Scotland, obviously. Seen from Ireland, uh, the huge shift of political affiliation and identity amongst uh, people from an Irish Catholic background in Scotland from the Labour Party to the SNP in the last, mm. last period is, is another huge, another shift which can be related to these, to these ones. And then you've got the, um, uh, the way in which uh, English government in England is so centralised, uh, the whole ways in which cities uh, and city regions under, underplayed. And again, that reflects back on the party political structure and the constitutional structure that they have. So there's an awful lot that needs deep reform and change. There's a kind of belated realisation of this. I think the agency of change is much more, well, you can say at the periphery rather than at the centre, but that's unfair. I don't, I don't like to think about Scotland or Ireland or Wales as peripheral uh, and the nationalism involved, and particularly in Scotland, but I would say... Uh, in classical terms, in Ireland, the Irish nationalism was an anti-imperial nationalism against that assertion of dominant 
global power as it uh, manifested itself in Ireland. Now, Scotland and Ireland experienced empires in very in very different way. Scotland was far more part of empire, as was the northern part of Ireland, um, through that industrialization of empire and the participation in all sorts of ways. The English fallout from this, uh, the hollowing out of that industrialism in the 19th 70s and 80s is part of these of these big changes so to some extent that gap has been filled by constitutional politics including in Scotland I mean the famous remark attributed to Lenin uh, that there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen uh, this was to describe periods of real revolutionary change but it can describe periods of more gradual change as well there is no will to grant Scotland uh, a referendum Realistically, when do you think we will be starting the negotiations for an independent Scotland? In this working group that I've been involved in uh, from University College London, um, we're having to examine the circumstances in which a Northern Ireland Secretary of State would call a referendum on Irish unification. Now, they're obliged to do that if it appears that there is a majority for it. Um, there's also discretionary power, but thinking about the evidence that would be brought to bear in the in the um, <clears throat> in any such decision. Well, you could think about uh, elections, including parliamentary or assembly elections. Uh, you could think about a vote in in, in parliament. Uh, you could think about polling. Uh, and you could think about the makeup of coalitions. Some of the informal soundings we took on it which, in this working group uh, would point to a sustained period of um, of majority sentiment in favour of a um, of a vote on Irish unification, and this would need to be sustained across those pieces of evidence uh, in a way that's. Um, convincing and, and suddenly becomes uh, uh, un, unstoppable, if you like, you know, towards a decision. And any, some of the politicians we've talked to have said, look, uh, politics can happen that way. You can, you suddenly, you make a decision because that evidence is there. And I mentioned that there are these commonalities now with referendums and borders and EU membership between Scotland and Ireland. The government in London says no, uh, it, it's, it's settled for a generation. Uh, but people we've spoken to and I've spoken to believe that were there to be that kind of sustained evidence across a span of political arenas, it would become at a certain point impossible to resist. Therefore, you would go towards a referendum. Now, I think that's it becomes an issue of political judgment. There's no dogmatism there. In between, you might, of course, have general elections uh, called by Johnson. I think there's been whisperings of this. It might suit him to go after the COVID thing to get a, a reinforced majority and therefore to be able to say, let us say, after the Scottish uh, elections in May, uh, that he, we has a, he has a mandate to trump that. And that, this would be politics, raw politics. Where do you go from there? Do you go in the Catalan direction, people ask? Do you go, some people ask, uh, but dulcetly, uh, do you go in the kind of, do you have to start thinking about a violent direction as happened in Ireland? Or, or does that undermine the, your legitimacy in the wider European setting? So I, these periods of change are, can be very fraught. If you look to the Scandinavian countries where they're much more, the power is devolved so much more to the local areas. How do, how do we counter that, even from our own government? Important and interesting league table of local government powers around Europe, amongst about 38 or 40 European states. And the last time I looked, Ireland was down at the bottom of it with Moldova. The UK was only a few points up. I think in Scotland you have this disjunction between centralised and localised power as well. It's, it's part of the system in the UK over the years, and it's been reinforced by during Irish independence. A lot of the trouble in, in Irish governance is to do with the lack of such powers, including in housing and environmental stuff at local level. So it's, it's, it's one, just to say that you get your independence, you know, at, at state level doesn't mean that you guarantee your, your democracy at local level. You have to fight for that 
additionally. And certainly there's a very strong case to be made for it in, in a more better educated society and richer society, more well-off society that needs to do environmental uh, things, for example, at a much more local level. I, I, I'm sure there are similar cases to be made in in Scotland and, of course, in England too, because uh, the nature of local democracy in England has been, been really hollowed out. You know, And if you compare it to continental experience in France, in Germany, all around not just in federal systems, but in, you know, in, in systems like, such as the French one or in Italy, uh, you see how much more power there is to be had at local level when you really go after it. I was just wondering um, if there was a successful plebiscite vote in Scotland this year, do you think this would be more, would this, would this put more pressure on the UK government and would it be accepted internationally? Well, I would have thought yes is the answer, but... Again, just let me go back to 1919 and 1918. Uh, what did Ireland do? They went to the, um, you know, the Versailles Treaty. They, yeah. they weren't allowed in, in, in uh, because the uh, British had done their diplomacy with uh, Wilson, and it was uh, President Wilson who didn't who didn't accept that the Irish would have a, a local standee at that meeting. If the nationalists get a majority and, and call a referendum and win it you've got a um, something equivalent to the 1918 electoral mandate in Ireland. You have to go and diplomatise that, uh, legalise that, legitimise it. I would have thought that's a very strong card to play. And as I mentioned in, in the Northern Ireland context, it's a, it's a democratic card after all. You have a big need for a diplomatic apparatus to deliver on this uh, it, it may need, you know, it may need qualitative change. You also need allies who can multiply your voices around Europe at that point. Can you see violence erupting again in Northern Ireland and then spreading to mainly the west coast of Scotland? All the evidence that I know of says that loyalism is not a completely spent force militarily, but it's minuscule. Uh, there might be 200 people involved in some of these organisations. A lot of them are to do with with uh, street gangs and drug, you know, semi-criminal stuff, and that's well well enough known. The the major mass organisations have been stood down, but the DUP in particular has handled all this crisis over the protocol so badly. Uh, their links with the Tories in London have been so incompetent and they've been ditched so much that they're very worried about the electoral outcomes and the polling shows that they're falling away and they're bleeding away support both to more intransigent unionists and also to the other group that I mentioned. So they're inclined very much to stoke this question and to use it then as a, as a kind of threat in dealing with London, dealing with others. So there's a kind of artificial aspect to this. The trouble is, this is, you know, if you let this go on and you don't respond to it uh, politically, it can, it can become, it can become self-fulfilling, arguably. I don't see much evidence for that yet. And I think uh, there'd be so much reaction against any resort to violence including from within the Protestant community itself, that is probably containable. And the shift would happen much more towards uh, opening up the question of unification or alternative futures rather than that direction. These are just my political hunches. So I don't see much real potential for that kind of spillover you mentioned. But, but if the British state... Uh, re regards all these developments as existential crises. Remember, they've stoked these waters too. One of the things that Brandon Lewis did, uh, Secretary of State, was drop the agreement that was reached uh, last year to um, handle the question of historic crimes. And one of the, the, the sets of lobbyings he was getting was from the British Army, uh, there's big loyalist disquiet at that because the loyalists were working with the British Army uh, in stoking a lot of this violence during the Troubles. Uh, so that kind of deep state stuff could come into play. I, 
I presume it could come into play in Scotland as well. I mean, this is an existential crisis for the rulers uh, of the UK, uh, and some of them are, are, are exceedingly unscrupulous and untrustworthy, as we've seen. So, and that's a, uh, something that I would say, but I would be reflecting a lot of Irish opinion on this, let us say. Yes. Uh, troubles in Northern Ireland. Is it not more the case it's a civil war within the UK? Civil conflict, when does civil conflict become civil war? I mean, I, 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 uh, the troubles were, the, no, the, it's the colloquial term we, we use for the, the violence from the 70s through to the 90s in the north of Ireland that was uh, resolved, uh, resolved by the 98 agreement, which is a very sophisticated agreement, still worth holding on to in most of its elements and which still would be held on to in a united Ireland, because there's a very interesting, important commitment there to the values of minority protection and human rights that would uh, last into united Ireland, last through the transfer of sovereignty. Can you give us any tips on how to deal with perfidious Albion? Uh, we're doing a handbook on Irish politics from the School of Politics in University College Dublin, where I work. And I've just done a chapter on British-Irish relations. One of the people who inspired me in writing that, and who is an important uh, historian of British-Irish relations, uh, was Ronan Fanning. He was professor of history in UCD. And he wrote two fine books, A Study of De Valera, uh, and another book on the treaty negotiations. And his lesson uh, in looking at, at, at British-Irish relations was that uh, at a certain point, the only way to deal with that perfidy was with force, with violence. And so he, you know, he came to the conclusion that Irish rebellion, if you like, <laughs> was necessary in order to deal with them. And that's a very important theme in Irish, British-Irish relations. And it's the fundamental belief uh, of Irish republicanism that if necessary, you deal with that perfidy by force of arms. Uh, and it's not very often said, and I, I, you know, I find it somewhat difficult to say, I'm putting it as bluntly like that. I'm not recommending that to Scotland because you've got a much stronger civil, civic republicanism uh, and a completely different attitude uh, or a set of relations historically uh, than, than Ireland's were with that Albion, you know, uh, and therefore it seems to me that the argument of force doesn't arise in quite the same way. But they must understand they, it's the perfidy comes from dominion and imperial, the imperial use of power. And that goes way back historically, as we know in Ireland, but as you ought to know in Scotland too. Uh, and it's that imperial cast of mind, that dominion, that top-down assertion of power that you're dealing with. And part of that assertion of power is simply that it believes that it can be perfidious. And therefore, you, you're back to that question. There are various ways of using force. It can take the form of general strikes. It can take the form of civic rebellion, of so on. But it may come to that, to forge a new state. And this has been the experience of other decolonizing so decolonization or, or secession, uh, you know, take different forms according to the relations between centers and peripheries and the controlled and, uh, and those who, who control. Perfidious Albion also can be dealt with as it weakens by soft power. And I think the uh, elements of soft power that have come into play and the use of Irish diplomacy in the recent past vis-a-vis -vis Brexit uh, has been, you know, <laughs> has not been using force, it's been using the force of soft power vis-a-vis uh, -vis Brussels, which is very, very yeah. significant to get people on side and that, even the sequencing of the negotiations to get the whole issue of Northern Ireland and, its, and that protocol into the first stage of negotiations, not the second, where, the, the, where London wanted to put it. And secondly, and the whole bringing in of the um, US dimension, the, the British diplomacy in its practice of perfidy, if that's 
the way we're to put it, didn't reckon and was astonished at the power of, of the soft, not, not only through Biden, but also through Congress. And a lot of the Irish soft power comes through Congress, as you see with Nancy Pelosi, uh, and you see with Richard Neal and the others who deal with trade issues. You, know, you have to be very hard-nosed indeed to deal with this, forcing back choices on, the, uh, on, the, on Albion itself. In the not too distant future, a change in the monarchy, um, coming up and its shaky status in the public esteem. Does this have any relevance at all, do you think? I'm, I'm sure it does have a relevance. The weakening, if, the, if, if it happens, uh, on the, the, the monarchy's legitimacy for the, the governing regime in the UK is really central. Uh, and if you think about sovereignty, I was talking about sovereignty, where does it reside? It resides in principle there. But I was participating in a very interesting discussion the other day in the University of Maynooth uh, with Gavin Esler, who's written this book on the UK's future. And uh, uh, one of the participants was Bridget Laffin, who's a, an Irish political scientist working now in the European University Institute in Florence. But she made the point very interestingly about the uh, functioning powers of the British monarchy when it comes to dealing with the British government, comparing it to the Italian president, who she's been observing closely, and saying that, in fact, the Italian presidency functionally has much more of a role to play in orchestrating government formation in Italy than perhaps the Queen has, Queen Elizabeth has, in the similar setting in, in the UK. Actually, that the government executive power in the UK is much stronger than it is in Italy. Uh, in which case, comparing function by function, the Italian presidency is much stronger role than the, the British monarchy has in that kind of executive power element. Whereas the symbolic role is huge, and I'm sure it's strong in Scotland. And is this not why, I mean, Salmond a number of years ago was talking about the, the different, the four or five unions as distinct from the political independence, including the monarchy? I don't know. I mean, the, in, in, in the north of Ireland, the monarchy is strong. How much across the communities, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's been much work done on that. There's a kind of sentimental attachment, as there is in the Republic, to Queen Elizabeth. And her visit to Ireland was a hugely symbolic event. Um, I, I mean, this was the height of the symbolic power available to that monarchy. And the return visit by Michael D. Higgins as, a couple of years later was equally, you know, equally important. And that's remembered. But in the passing and in the transition in the monarchy, it opens up questions of a difficult transition in the middle of a constitutional moment for the UK of transition can add up. I don't know, you, you, you have more insight on this than I would, but it certainly it adds to the ingredients of destabilisation, it seems to me. I'm concerned that we're all getting too concerned about what might happen uh, on the dark side of what we're trying to achieve. We should be thinking about how mobilising our young people, and we're going to do that. We should be thinking about how we mobilise that to music, art, drama, sport. I keep thinking of your Celtic connections, 784. These things have much more impact, and, and we should be trying to look at all the positives. In many cases, you know, Celtic Connections brought together musicians from Scotland, Ireland, Canada, USA, New Zealand, wherever. I think that's great. I mean, you're right. And I think you've, you've an open book on that uh, with, with Ireland. Uh, you've all the channels and far more channels than existed before, perhaps, culturally, uh, to do that. This thing, talk about violence, and that, that would be a, a, a terrible mistake. Why don't we look towards Gandhi and all the, the non-violent civil disobedience type movements that there have been? Do you have any ideas that you can point us to? I think your, what I would call your civic nationalism, uh, the preparedness, the thoroughness with which uh, the work was done ahead of the 2014 referendum, for example, uh, the, all of the gradual but strong and very determined build-up of of the sentiment behind Scotland's 
autonomy and independence is really impressive seen from afar. The nature of that nationalism, the outgoing nature of that nationalism uh, is huge strength. It's not just demonstrated by street numbers. It's dememonstrated by the old I was going to say republican traditions that are in 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 involved in civic nationalism in 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 Scotland civic republicanism therefore it's the mobilization of that that is impressive uh, impressive internationally i talked about the moment 100 years ago for ireland it was at the high imperial moment it, it's not the same kind of moment now and therefore the the, the nonviolent methods are much more uh, convincing and there is also uh for for all the quarrels with uh, and arguments with london there is the principle of consent is conceded by them which is not elsewhere and it's it's a matter of getting that put legally and legitimated again that comes into play with with you so i think you know um i don't think there's any automatic read off at all from the irish history of 100 years ago to your story now it's a di- very different context and setting in ireland thinking about these changes and i mentioned the work i've been doing on unionism uh, unionism in the north of ireland is in a bind at the moment it it needs to to be able to get to be helped to get out of that to talk about futures including um as i mentioned confederal futures beyond the union even but futures through this transition um uh where they're going to have to win arguments or lose them and unless they engage and we're having this discussion about Irish referendums a lot of them refuse to engage with the discussion and research we're doing because they say that only helps the the kind of unity argument along but if you think about what's going to happen in these referendums we've been discussing either unionism wins the argument or independence or unity win the argument and that's going to they're going to be engaged so we might as well try and do this in a civil way and try and convince people who are going to shift uh, that that can happen and anything you can do from Scotland to engage with northern unionism with whom you've lots and lots of a uh, cultural connections and encourage them to take civic nationalism more seriously and understand that we have a kind of common future whatever the outcome the better you know so i i think that's the kind of the good manners if you like of our uh, of the search for alternative futures and constitutional futures if it's done civilly uh we come out the other end in a much better place i think if we can manage that so lots to think about there some great questions and some very frank answers Our thanks to Grassroots Oban and to Pensioners for Indy and Dr Paul Gillespie for sharing their event with us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others you think would like it and don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back again next Friday with another podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye now.